Throughout 2021, CTSI Discovery Radio shined light on stories of research and discoveries through translational science, ranging from medical advancements. We have taken the anatomy of the pancreas and how it is imaged to a next level so that we can say to a patient and their family, this tumor is operable or this tumor isn't. To discoveries through clinical trials. So we got to have big, robust clinical trials that tell us, does complex and plasma work in helping people with COVID-19 get better, and you need a very large clinical trial to do that. And impactful personal experiences of perseverance and positive outcomes. It is life-changing and amazing. Join us inside this special 2021 Year in Review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. We began our 2021 year of shows by focusing on pancreatic cancer. Although the survival rate isn't as high as in other forms of cancer, and fighting pancreatic cancer is indeed challenging, it's not impossible. Dr. Susan Tsai is an associate professor, Department of Surgery, Division of Surgical Oncology, at the Medical College of Wisconsin who told us why pancreatic cancer is characterized as a particularly aggressive form of cancer. It has a reputation for being a very aggressive cancer. Part of that is that it's kind of a hidden organ, and so oftentimes things may grow in the pancreas without us even knowing it until it grows to a size that it causes problems. So oftentimes patients who are diagnosed with pancreas cancer are diagnosed with a later stage or more advanced cancer because it's gone undetected for so long. But she also shared that treatment can be successful. So diagnosis of pancreatic cancer isn't necessarily a death sentence. That's unfortunately propagated in media and movies, but you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had pancreatic cancer for 10 years of her life. So I think the most important thing to realize is that it's not a death sentence. We have treatments now that we didn't even have 10 years ago. And we understand the biology of pancreas cancer so much better now, again, than even a decade ago. Making it possible, in many cases, to have quality of life following pancreatic cancer treatment. The diagnosis and the treatment is life-changing. But at the same time, our goal is to return people to a quality of life similar to what they had before. When patients finish their treatment, their digestion is a little bit altered. But in general, we'd like to see patients return to their families and live with a very reasonable quality of life. And I think that is achievable from what I've seen from my patients. Learn about pancreatic cancer treatment on our January show, episode 81. 
In February, we discovered a national clinical trial to determine the efficacy of convalescent plasma in treating COVID-19 patients. The Contain COVID clinical trial is managed by the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, or NCATS. We heard from then-director Dr. Chris Austin, who shared why convalescent plasma is undergoing further testing in a national multi-center clinical trial, including participation by the CTSI at the Medical College of Wisconsin. There were two trials that started way back in April, but they were relatively small trials. And we reached a point where there was evidence that convalescent plasma was safe and maybe effective, but maybe not. So we got to have big, robust clinical trials to tell us, does convalescent plasma work in helping people with COVID-19 get better? And if so, who are they? Is it early in their disease, late in their disease, mild COVID, severe COVID? That's what you have to know in order to treat people. And you need a very large clinical trial design that will allow us to answer these kinds of questions. So the CTSAs were called on to do that. And that's when MCW got involved. And he recalled how, when invited to participate in the clinical trial, the CTSI and MCW did not hesitate. It was in mid-October. And I'm sure you remember what was going on in Wisconsin in mid-October. The numbers continued to skyrocket in Wisconsin. So I called and I said, would you please consider joining this trial in typical MCW fashion? Absolutely. We're going to get on this tomorrow. And did. Given how long it takes to get a clinical trial started at any site, MCW has been wonderful. So it's a very large trial, and that's the trial that MCW is involved in. And he has high hopes for the impact contained COVID could have. Yes, for COVID patients, but also for participating institutions like CTSI. You can't do the best that we should expect of each other and ourselves alone. No matter where you are, most of the knowledge is somewhere else. So when we work together and the more diverse our teams are, the more successful we are. And that's why these kinds of national collaboratives are so important. So I hope Contain will benefit not only patients, but the CTSI as well. For more, check out our February show, episode 82. By March, our community, our country, our world was impacted by COVID-19 for a full year, but we now had vaccines for providing immunity to the coronavirus. To share vital information and answer important questions about the vaccines, we turn to an expert. Dr. Kristen Bussey is an assistant professor of pharmacy administration and regulatory sciences and the Research Oversight Program Director in the School of Pharmacy at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Bussey explained how two of the vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, work to provide immunity. mRNA vaccines work by entering your cells, and we know that mRNA doesn't enter your DNA, but what it does do is it teaches your body to recognize that COVID-19 spike protein. Then your body develops antibodies to that spike protein, and that's what helps you fight off COVID-19 once you are exposed to it again. She also assured us that the benefits of receiving the vaccine far outweigh any risks. We've heard horror stories all of 2020 as COVID spread through the country. We know what those risks are. Now we have this vaccine. The FDA has done their due diligence reviewing the safety and efficacy. Addressed many of the public misperceptions about the vaccinations, 
including... No part of the COVID-19 virus is included in any COVID-19 vaccine. There's no live virus. There's no attenuated or deadened virus as part of these vaccines. And she recommended that if you're hesitant about getting vaccinated, seek information from experts, not social media. Talk to healthcare professionals who know about the vaccines and about the data that would help inform your decision. And if people are hesitant because they're worried that these technologies are too new, that's just not true. mRNA vaccinations have been around for a long time. This is the disease that it finally worked in. I wish more people could understand that and talk to experts who could help explain that to them. Hear the facts about the vax on our March show. Episode 83. In April, as many of us anxiously awaited the fresh spring air, we learned how millions of Americans diagnosed with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, can't take breathing for granted because, for them, breathing is a challenge and sometimes nearly impossible. Dr. Jonathan Kerman is an assistant professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Pulmonary Medicine, at the Medical College of Wisconsin. COPD is a condition that affects the airways within the lungs so that airflow is disrupted during normal breathing. So folks with COPD have difficulty breathing, and they may also have a chronic cough as well. This results in shortness of breath with activities so that they're limited in how much they can do. But the severity of symptoms can vary between patients. Some people have very mild, whereas others have much more severe symptoms. It usually correlates with the amount of smoking someone has done in the past, but not always. Folks may be a little short of breath, but other people may have much more severe symptoms, and some people even have trouble leaving their house because they're so short of breath. And because smoking is the most common cause for developing COPD, Dr. Kerman says, if you smoke, quit. Absolutely, quit smoking. Even if you have smoked for a long time, there is still a benefit to quitting because once you quit, Regardless of how long you've smoked, the rate of decline in your lung function will rapidly approach that of someone who has never smoked. Discover the battle to breathe with COPD, including the stories of two people who have it, on our April show, episode 84. Breast cancer affects women of all races across our country and in our community but not necessarily in equal measure between different races. The Breast Cancer Race and Place Research Study is underway to examine the role elements such as race and residential segregation contribute to breast cancer survivorship disparities throughout metropolitan Milwaukee. Dr. Kirsten Beyer is an associate professor in the Institute for Health and Equity at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and principal investigator of the Breast Cancer Race and Place Study. There is a large gap in survival after breast cancer diagnosis, particularly between black and non-Hispanic white women. And that gap cannot be explained by individual and tumor characteristics, nor by treatment. 
given the problem of structural racism in the United States and patterns of racial segregation, we hypothesized that some of this unexplained gap in survival is due to systemic racism, including specifically in the housing sector, because we know that there are pretty significant patterns of racial segregation across U.S. cities, and that some of the reasons for that have to do with the ability to obtain high-quality and stable housing in urban centers for people of color. Dr. Stacy Young is an associate professor, Department of Family Medicine Division of Research at the Medical College of Wisconsin and a vital member of the study's research team, learning about key disparities through interviews with breast cancer survivors, including the similarities between and uniqueness of their experiences. Women talking about history of cancer in their families or there wasn't a history of cancer and that was new information for them. Women have talked about living in their neighborhood, about both individual and family stressors, going through cancer diagnosis and treatment. And then they also talk about social support from others or they've been a support to other people. But women's life experiences vary quite a bit. That is the beauty of these interviews and these narratives Even though women are sharing this common diagnosis, the trajectory of their lives varies. Every interview is different. That's a wonderful thing, that everybody has a very unique story to tell. Discover the Breast Cancer Race and Place Research Study on our May Show, Episode 85. Millions of children worldwide suffer from functional abdominal pain disorders, and sadly, there are very few medications for effectively treating them. But in June, we discovered an innovative non-pharmacological therapy that is proving to be successful. Dr. Katya Kovacic is an assistant professor, Department of Pediatrics, Division of Gastroenterology, at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She's also a pioneer at Children's Wisconsin in the groundbreaking treatment known as auricular neurostimulation. Auricular neurostimulation is an alternative medicine therapy based on an electrical stimulator that delivers stimulation to the outer ear, thereby affecting specific cranial nerves and affect the brain and gut signaling and improve pain and functional GI symptoms. How exactly does nerve stimulation to the ear positively impact abdominal pain? She explains the science behind it. The ear is very interesting because there are some cranial nerves that travel through the skull and the cranial nerve number 10 is called the vagus nerve and that travels through the brainstem down through the entire GI tract except for the very end of the colon. These nerves are fascinating. If you can stimulate the vagus nerve, you have enormous potential for improving many different medical conditions. So, Dr. Kovacic has developed a device called the IB Stim. It's fairly simple. There's a small battery pack, a little bit looking like an old school hearing aid that goes behind the ear, and then it's connected to four different electrodes. Three of them are placed on the front side of the ear and actually penetrate the skin to deliver neurostimulation closer to the nerve. And the concept is that we don't want to oversaturate and overstimulate that nerve. The stimulator is kicking in on and off all the time, therefore much more effective than units that are actually not penetrating the skin. And hear the experience of a patient who suffered from functional abdominal pain for years until wearing the IB Stim device. It is life-changing and amazing. So much freedom that I didn't even dream was possible. Anything I can do right now was very difficult or impossible for me to do without this device. 
hear her incredible story on our June show, episode 86. By July, you were probably enjoying our summer in full swing. And depending on where you were enjoying it, you may have been at risk for contracting the illness known as Lyme disease. Dr. Susan Paskowitz is Professor and Chair, Department of Entomology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and she's an expert in the deer ticks we get the Lyme disease pathogen from. Wisconsin is actually a hot spot for Lyme disease, and so where we've done direct comparisons for the density of the abundance of those ticks, Wisconsin has some of the worst densities, you know, that we've seen. And she shared where deer ticks pick up the pathogen, and it's not from deer. You know it's not the case. The deer are really good at feeding, especially the adult ticks, but they're not very good at infecting the ticks. For Lyme disease, mice are important in this cycle, and chipmunks also serve as the source of the infection. So not coming from the deer at all. We also heard from Dr. Robert Lockhead, Assistant Professor, Department of Microbiology and Immunology, and head of the Lockhead Lab at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Our lab focuses on understanding the mechanisms of pathogenesis of Lyme arthritis. And we're really interested in it from a couple of different perspectives. One, what causes it? Two, why does it persist in some people even after the infection itself is cleared? And three, how does Lyme disease trigger autoimmune responses in some patients? You might come away feeling a bit itchy, but you'll definitely be well-informed when you listen to our TikTok and Lyme disease research, episode 87. When someone suffers from severe or complex symptoms due to a life-limiting or terminal condition, a primary doctor can't single-handedly address all of that patient's needs. Pain management support, emotional support, social support, or other factors that impact a patient's quality of life. That's where palliative care comes in. In August, we heard from Dr. Wendy Peltier, Associate Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Geriatric and Palliative Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and a key member of the palliative care program at Freighter Hospital, to gain her insights about this emerging and important area of health care. Palliative care is a medical specialty that focuses on quality of life for patients experiencing serious illness to provide support, help in managing symptoms, and guidance when navigating difficult decisions. We learn that the main focus of palliative care is providing relief. There's always so much confusion about the term palliative and the name of our discipline, palliative care, and the literal meaning of that word is to palliate or to provide relief. Provide relief in what ways? The focus of palliative care is looking at how best to manage the complications of having a serious illness. And this focus is actually on treating the patient in the context of their family unit, their community, and their culture. Practical support and what we call anticipatory guidance, the look ahead of what might be coming with their condition and how best to prepare. But for all that palliative care is, it's not the same as hospice care. Hospice is the philosophy of care, but it's also an insurance benefit. 
that you enroll in. And that's how it differs from palliative care. So when someone is ready to focus on comfort and they have a terminal illness, in order to receive hospice care, they have to be eligible and they have to enroll in hospice care. We also heard from Marla who shared her palliative care experience with us. We know this time around that it's not curative. We're advanced to terminal and it just felt like it was the right time. We might need a little extra support. We needed it now. Hear Marla's brave story and discover the blessings and benefits of palliative care on our August show, episode 88. In September, we alerted you to a potential health risk, particularly for children. Exposure to lead can dramatically impact a child's physical and cognitive developmental growth, even leading to future negative outcomes. Dr. Heather Parody is Deputy Commissioner of Medical Services at the Milwaukee Health Department and Medical Director of Community Services at Children's Wisconsin, who told us... refer to pediatric lead poisoning as a silent epidemic. It is often unknown until we discover it at a routine checkup and we know chronic low-level exposure during childhood can lead to adverse outcomes potentially for life. In the state of Wisconsin, approximately 5% of our children who are tested are considered to have elevated lead levels. Here in the Milwaukee community, we see rates that are approximately double that. Dr. Jillian Theobald is Associate Medical Director of the Wisconsin Poison Center, who shared her insight on sources for elevated blood lead levels in children. Leaded paint is the primary source of lead poisoning that we typically deal with. Paint coming around windowsills where it's chipping off and kids are chewing on things that have the leaded paint within them. And if you have a lead service line coming off the main line of water and into your home, lead present in some candies and makeups that aren't manufactured in the U.S., although those are much less likely to cause issues than the paint chips and service lines for water. We also heard from Dr. David Nelson, Associate Professor, Department of Family Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Principal Investigator of the Clinical and Community Solutions to Lead-Free Children program. What we're doing is initiating a quality improvement process within pediatrics and within family medicine. The ultimate goal is zero lead in all people. Any lead above zero is not a level we want. We give voice to the silent epidemic of pediatric lead poisoning on our September show, episode 89. Hearing loss affects millions of Americans, young and old. On the mild end of the spectrum, hearing loss can lead to significant inconvenience. And on the severe end, isolation. Dr. Christina Rungi is professor of otolaryngology at the Medical College of Wisconsin and a licensed audiologist. Hearing loss is one of, if not the most common disability. It affects 48 million Americans. And in fact, half a million people in Wisconsin have some form of debilitating hearing loss. So it's a very widespread problem, and we're anticipating that that will increase as our population ages as well. 
And it's a problem beyond one's inability to hear properly. Hearing loss doesn't just impact people from the hearing perspective. It can really impact people's quality of life. For that reason, it can cause depression, social isolation, and anxiety. It's one of our critical senses. And so if we don't have that sense, that can really impact how we move throughout our day. Fortunately, there are devices to help restore hearing. Dr. Kristen Kozlowski is an audiologist at Freydert and the Medical College of Wisconsin. There are many options today that can help with hearing loss, including hearing aids, cochlear implants, and even assistive devices that can help for specific situations someone might be having difficulty hearing. And she knows the significant impact these devices can have on a patient's life people who have been able to communicate with grandchildren again, who can go and enjoy the movies, who can be more socially active, and it can have a profound impact on someone's quality of life, no matter what age they are. Including an innovative new device created by Dr. Christina Rungi. The personal sound amplification app, you download like you do all your other apps, and then you have your headphones plugged in to your smartphone. So it's using your smartphone as an amplifier. This is creating something that will go right into the hands of our patients and help them. Listen and learn about hearing loss and devices to restore hearing on our October show, episode 90. In November, we came full circle, revisiting the topic we began 2021 with, pancreatic cancer. But this time, during Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, our focus shifted first to pancreatic cancer surgeries, as we heard from Dr. Doug Evans, chair of the Department of Surgery and Donald C. Osman Family Foundation Professor of Surgery at the Medical College of Wisconsin and an internationally renowned oncologist at the forefront of the global battle against pancreatic cancer. You know, it's very common for our patients to look upon surgery as their main goal. They want to have the tumor surgically excised, but it certainly is not sufficient. One of the really great things that we have brought forward is a very objective staging system based upon what we can surgically excise and what we can't. We have taken the anatomy of the pancreas and surrounding blood vessels and how it is imaged to a next level so that we can say to a patient, this tumor is operable or this tumor isn't, and the likelihood that we will have a successful surgery is X percent based upon your stage at the time of diagnosis. We also heard again from Dr. Susan Tsai, director of the Laban Pancreatic Cancer Program at Freydert and the Medical College of Wisconsin, who shared details on the new pancreas clinical trial she's leading, based on the recent discovery of two distinct pancreas cancer tumor subtypes, classical and basal-like. At the core, these tumors tend to be very different in either the way they react to chemotherapies, how they utilize energy like glucose, And those are some ways that we can actually take advantage of how to better select treatments so that classical tumors can have a specific type of therapy and potentially basal-like tumors need a very different therapy. Every cancer arises from an individual person, so to have one therapy be the perfect therapy for every single person the same way, it just doesn't work. And so this is a great advance 
to test whether we can get people to the most effective therapies without having an error in the trial and error process. Discover effective surgical procedures and a new clinical trial aimed at improving pancreas cancer patient outcomes on our November show, episode 91. And with that, we wrap up and put a bow on this special 2021 Year in Review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. As always, we thank all of our interview guests from throughout the year. And, of course, we especially thank you for listening to, supporting, and sharing CTSI Discovery Radio all year long and in the year to come. I hope you've discovered something by listening to each of this year's shows. And I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us in 2022 as we bring you another year of topics exploring the latest in translational science discoveries and successful outcomes. Throughout 2022, CTSI Discovery Radio will continue to air the third Friday of every month. So please make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Bellmer, wishing you warm, safe holidays and a happier, healthier new year. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Bellmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.